Hey, grab your Bible and let's give our attention to the reading of God's word today. In Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible or own a Bible, there's a paperback Bible in the pew in front of you. That is our gift to you. We would love for you to leave with God's word. Ephesians chapter 5. And our text this morning will be verses 22 through 33. At the conclusion of the reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And because we are grateful that God has spoken, we will say thanks be to God this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. This is God's word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes And cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we have a very special treat for you today. As you know, um, this past weekend, we had close to 100 people, over 80 couples, um, go to our Mystery of Marriage conference. And I tell you what, it was a phenomenal time there at Van Buren in the landing. We laughed, um, we cried together, we had a great time. But we had Mr. Randy Garris from Ozark Christian College come and speak. And I tell you what, it was a phenomenal time. And one of the things that I'm so thankful about for Randy is um, he wasn't the speaker dude that hid in the room all weekend. He sat at tables. Um, He talked to couples. Last night, we ate dinner with a bunch of families. He was holding babies this morning. He was folding bulletins um, out there in the lobby. And so Randy travels all across the country and speaks. Um, He has been married to his wife, Julie, um, uh, since 1976. Their parents, their grandparents, he's a husband, he's a father, he's been a pastor, all of these things. So Westside, would you please give Randy a warm welcome this morning? Come on, brother. I am honestly glad to be here, and I mean that. Every speaker always says that. You never hear a speaker go, well, I wished I was out playing golf, but I'm here today, you know. But, but I really am glad to be here and honored to, 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 do, uh, to do this. Uh, those of you that have not heard me speak before, I'm not very good, but I always try to go long to make up for it. And so that's kind of a pattern. Actually, could do some introduction, uh, but I don't know. I, Julie, uh, I'm married over my head. Uh, Married up like most guys in this room did. Uh, been married the 42 years, and it's a blast. And so we're going to talk about marriage today. comes out of that. I want to spend most of my time talking just um, about out of the Scripture. There's a lot of myths and old wives' tales that have been through the years. You've heard lots of those myths. You've heard that uh, if 
you throw salt over your shoulder, you're supposed to get better luck. If you cross your eyes, they'll stay crossed. You, you've heard that frogs will give you warts if you pick those up or toads will. Uh, you've heard you aren't supposed to go swimming within an hour of eating because that, I mean, and all of those are just false and just not true. Here's another one. The primary purpose of marriage is to make you happy. It fits right in there with the toad story. You see, another version of it goes like this, that your marriage is not right for you if you're not happy in it. That fits right in there with a broken mirror and 13 years of bad luck. Another one goes, you're supposed to marry the person who will make you the happiest. Those are old wives' tales. They fit with the flat earth society. It's really, really frustrating when you don't know what the purpose of something is. If you don't know what the purpose of something is, you will absolutely drive yourself crazy with it. You know what this is? It's a hammer. Well, actually, you're rolling your eyes at me, but the truth is, it often is for me. Here's why. In the mid-1970s, I bought my red toolbox that keeps most of my sockets and my other wrenches in it, and it doesn't have room to keep a real hammer inside of it with everything else in it. So when I'm under a car or I'm somewhere and I need a hammer, here's what I always do. I reach over and grab this thing, and I use it as my hammer. Now, here's what it will do every stinking time. It will bruise this thumb, okay? It will scrape these knuckles in what I tried to do. It will make me think of bad words from my ill-spent youth um, will, will, will come out. And I use it as a hammer, and it doesn't work. Because its purpose is not to be a hammer, but when you don't know the purpose of something and you use it. Some of you, quite frankly, are not as joyful in your own marriage and you're not as satisfied and you're not on track in your own marriage because quite Frankly, you thought, you thought you knew what it was for, and it's not. This concept of getting married or raising your kids up just so they can be happy in their marriage. Well, I'm talking to singles today as much as married. I'm talking this whole process. If you think your happiness is one of the first keys to marriage, you're going to do more than bruise your thumb. You're going to break your heart. If you think your happiness is one of the primary reasons of marriage, you're not just going to scrape the back of your hands. You're going to cause other people around you to bleed. When I say marriage is not primarily to make you happy, it probably sounds a little bit like I should be wearing aluminum foil on my head and talking about aliens somewhere. Because everything tells us marriage is meant to make you happy. Disney tells us. Everything Disney does tells us. All the books that have been read out there and all the books a million and all of the, the Dalton bookstores. You go through, the, through all the authors, the Daniel Steeles and the Suzanne Collins and all of them over and over again. Marriage should make you happy. Listen to your radio stations. Katy Perry and Pink and Jay-Z and Bruno and George Strait. Oh, I know the fact that marriage is supposed to make you happy is as common as rain. But you explain to me why there are more broken-hearted songs by all those artists than there are satisfaction songs. We traded cars here um, a year or so ago. Julie's Highlander had a couple hundred thousand miles on it, and my wife travels and speaks a lot. And so I thought I'd probably better get something with a little less miles for her moving around a little bit. 
Well, the one we picked up, it, it uh, um, had Sirius XM um, satellite radio. And sure enough, the love channel is there. Well, I was speaking down at Fort Smith, Arkansas. Actually, I was going down and recording a set of seven series down on Fort Smith. And, and I put on the love channel. If you can tell by looking at me, that's my personality. Um, <laughs> and as I'm going down to, to Fort Smith, I kept count of the number of songs that were sung that were anthem songs about love where you fist bump and go, yes, this works. Yeah, this is amazing. And I kept track of how many are brokenhearted songs. I thought it would work, and it didn't work, and I wanted it to work, and I cried myself to sleep. Can I tell you it's not even close to 50-50? I've done it three other times since, Here's why when an artist stands at a concert and sings love songs, people identify with pain more out of love songs than they do triumph out of love songs. And so the authenticity of the brokenheartedness has to be sung. I want to say to you again today, as clear as I can, the couples that were there this weekend, you've got to build something different. You cannot borrow from what your neighbors have or you will have what your neighbors have. You cannot borrow what seems as right as rain in this culture. It is not working. Secular culture, and even secular culture that infiltrates the thinking of Christians, will take what God has given, a foundation that is wonderful, and secular culture will always build a cardboard shack on top of it. And the cardboard shack about marriage has been built long enough... Any group I go to, any set of college kids, I was in Northwest Missouri State here just three or four weeks ago. I was with about three or 400 college kids. I spent Friday night through, and I asked, how many of you grew up in the kind of marriage that you want for your children and for yourself? And I had less than 10% of the room held up their hand. We're building cardboard shacks on a foundation that God has given us. There's cheap, shabby substitutes for the purpose of marriage. If you go back through the years, it's, it's changed in different decades and different uh, cultures. But you say, what's the meaning or the purpose of marriage? And some cultures will tell you it's for financial stability. Other cultures will tell you it's for social status. And other cultures will tell you it's so that you can have free sexual expression. And other cultures will tell you it's so you can have children. Our culture happens to be believe that you get married so that you can have all of the happiness and you can be, find completion in your own heart and you can find somebody that loves you and you can come together and that this infatuation really leads to wholeness. Besides not being God's design, doesn't work. It doesn't work. You can use a screwdriver as a chisel or you can use a, a chisel as a screwdriver, but they won't work very well. And you can take marriage as it's supposed to make me happy and you will be frustrated and you will think your spouse is the problem. Why? I thought about swinging by Walmart this morning for a couple of aids. Just to bring, I thought about bringing a little bundle, that $4.87 bundle of flowers you can get when you walk in the door there and hold them up. And they're pretty. And they're cut flowers. And I could say to you, I hope your marriage is happy and wonderful and lasts as long as these flowers do. And everybody knows we're going to discard these pretty soon because they're not going to hold their petal. Why? Because the root is wrong. 
There is no root. On the other hand, I could have gone by and picked up a potted plant and I hold it and I say, this plant, I hope your marriage has as much life as this plant does. And the truth is, you know, there's a root in something that has life and will keep growing and generationally can be sustained. The issue right here is what are you rooted in? God's purpose for your marriage is here in Ephesians chapter 5. It, there's a long passage. You got acquainted with a little bit of the first part of it as dearly loved children. And, and you got acquainted a little bit with walk in love as Christ's love. A little bit further down, it says, don't you be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. You be filled with his spirit. And then it goes to this section on marriage. I want to reread just a little bit of Ephesians chapter 5. I want to start at the 25th verse. But I want you to notice something in particular. I want you to notice the theme I want you to notice the primary theme. Don't get lost in the trees. I want you to see the forest. Here it is. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. If I just stop at that set of verses, I want you to notice what jumps out. And the reason it matters is because this is a reflection. This is the roadmap I want you to have for your marriage. This is the purpose of your marriage. Notice from verse 26, I want you to sanctify her. I want you to make them holy. Verse 27, to present her. To present them in radiant beauty and splendor. Verse 27, to bring her to to perfectly holy and blameless life. Those words that jump off of that page are sacred words. They are not about getting something and using something. They're about elevating and lifting something up. And so the words that he uses are words that he sets up and says, now when you go home, As a husband, do not measure your wife by how satisfied you are in your marriage. Did she make me happy? You miss the sacred. Every house ought to have a burning bush in the living room. You ought to have a burning bush in the bedroom. You ought to have a burning bush when you carried your bride across the threshold. Because here's what's happened. We walked onto sacred ground and we're taking off our sandals at some level. And we are addressing the God of all the universe. And we're partnering with him on the big story he's writing. And in this house, in this neighborhood, with this woman and this man, we're going to live out what God is already doing. This is a sacred thing we take. The word glory. Tim Keller puts it this way. Marriage is two, two spiritual friends helping each other on their journey to become the people God designed them to be. Marriage is simply this. I'm signing on with God on an epic journey in your life. And I'm signing on with God to be the partner that God will use. To bring about the holiness and the righteousness and the completion and the transformation in you. Quite frankly, that's Holy Spirit stuff. I'm signing on to be in your life to do the same things the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. In marriage, at a human level, it's two kids who decide 
I want to surrender my life to cup my hands. Here, kid. Here, hon. Come put your foot here. I want to help. I want to help raise you up to everything God ever made you to be in all your glory and wonder and splendor. He'll give you full transformation that will finally happen at heaven's gates. But I want to be the one who cups my hands and we climb this fence together. I have a son who's 40. And there's a whole process of him getting married. But I, I think the easiest one to tell you about is my second child. My second child is Katie. My third child is Megan. Josh was an engineer in Joplin. And he and Katie had been dating. And Josh called me up and said, Say, Mr. Garris, would you, would you meet me at Shoney's restaurant for breakfast this next week? I knew what was coming. We sat down, and he's, he's a man's man. He's, he's the kind of man that other men are just drawn to. He's a classy good guy and a deep lover of Christ. His hands shook just a little bit. His voice had a little quiver. He couldn't bring himself to call me Randy. Mr. Garris, I'd like your permission to to ask Katie to marry me. And we had a conversation, and I could have let him off the hook pretty easily with a yes pretty quickly, but what's the fun in that? <laughs> and honestly, it was more than that. I, I said, Josh, there's, there's just aren't any men I admire more than you. But Josh, I have to ask you this. I said, she was a little pink bundle they handled me handed me at the hospital. I've raised this girl and I've loved her. I fought every way I could to protect her and to, and, and, and to, lay, to raise up to everything God made her to be. And if I give you my blessing and hand with my blessing her over to you, what will happen? And Josh said, Mr. Garris, I promise you, I will keep her safe the rest of my life. He said, I want to sacrifice my life to help her become everything she ought to be and everything she wants to be and everything God is doing in her life. And if you don't care, I'd like to join you, the parents, and what God's already doing, and I'd like to bring about her wholeness. So we traded three camels, a herd of goats, and we, and we shook hands, and it all turned out. Can I tell you, that's exactly what that man has done. They've been married about 12 years now. I never go to their house that the Bible is not open where Josh is a student of the scriptures. My daughter will tell me the prayer that he gets on his knees and prays for each of the kids that they have. They have four. My daughter's pretty stressed this weekend. She's leading a retreat for 150 women. That's an incredibly intense retreat. And Josh was the one who would kneel beside their bed and he would pray for her. He's not showy. He's not flashy. He's just, he's, he has all the personality at some level that some engineers have. <laughs> what I mean by that is he's so much fun, but he is not self-projecting. And he has prayed and led my daughter. 
Can I also tell you, quite frankly, it kind of works the other way too. Josh is a better man because my daughter has cupped her hands and prayed for Josh and she has cheered for him and rooted for him. Because if you go into marriage that you believe that marriage is for me, you'll have a thousand paper cuts. You'll keep keeping track of record. James chapter 3 verse 2 says we all stumble in many ways. Everybody married a stumbler. There's not a single person in this room who's not married to a stumbler. And if you decide that, that you're a little bit of a quiet scorekeeper on am I happy enough? Are they meeting my needs? Are they looking after me? Am I sacrificing more or are they sacrificing more? Well, it's clear I'm sacrificing more. It's pretty obvious they're not paying enough attention. And somehow you become that set of cut flowers. When Ryan and Megan got married, my daughter Megan I know her, her well. I know my daughter inside and out, and my daughter's one of the sweetest things imaginable, but, I, but my daughter's a stumbler. James chapter 3, verse 2, just write about her. And when Ryan married my daughter, I knew good and well he w- would bump into some of those things that will frustrate him because she frustrated me in junior high over those same things. I knew what would frustrate him. Now, she's so easy to get along with. I know that, too. But, but I knew he was marrying somebody that would stumble. But it is scary how much I wanted her loved in spite of those stumbles. The Heavenly Father, in a sacred way, at some place, brought a little girl or a little boy into the world And he began to tell stories of redemption long before they could understand it. And the whole cross of Christ was to redeem a stumbler. And the Spirit of God is put in a stumbler. And then somewhere you said, God, can I partner with you in a marriage? And can I walk with them? And can I partner on the journey you're taking them on? One of the craziest things you could ever say is, you know, I kind of began to mistreat her because she stumbles. Or I stopped loving her very much because her stumbles bothered me. Or, hey, hey, I'm going to hold back and reserve myself and kind of starve her out emotionally till she decides to stop stumbling. This whole concept is pretty simple. You realize, don't you, that God is your father-in-law? That's a little boy who belongs to God. And it's pretty tough to stand accountable to God someday and say, you know, I just didn't love them well because, well, quite frankly, I didn't like how they stumbled. If God is my father-in-law, at some level, if God's purposes are not first, then I promise you selfishness will win. I know what's winning in your marriage. Now, you may hide it. Most of us are civil and polite enough and kind enough, and most of us have at least enough um, common courtesy that we can hide our selfishness. But if you are not first and foremost sacrificing your own life to join the very thing God is doing in somebody else's life, here's what you're doing in place of it. You are being more self-absorbed than you know. I I promise you, selfishness is winning. 
I've done about 700 weddings probably. I don't know. We were in a pretty good-sized church, and I was surrounded by two sides by Missouri Southern State University. Uh, I, I, I preached for 33 years at the College Heights Christian Church. And out of those 700 and some weddings or whatever I would have done through the years, they would often bring me the vows they wanted. And sometimes I could put the vows in they wanted, and sometimes I just simply, it just meant we hadn't done enough premarital counseling because, no, sweetheart, this is not, this won't work. But here's common. This wouldn't shock you. These are the kind of vows that somebody would say, I want in there. Things like, you are the best thing to come into my life, and you will be my best friend forever, and you are perfect for me, and you complete me. And I mean, all of those are sweet. Put a little background music to them, and they're, they're wonderful. They'll make out on a country song. But did you notice the pronouns? My life, my best friend, perfect for me. You complete me. They are pronouns of selfishness. And with romance and cut flowers, you don't seem to notice it. At some point in time, you've got to decide what marriage you're living. Yours or God's. Are you building a cardboard shack on a foundation God laid? My wife... And I have had an amazing journey. There's no way for me to tell you how grateful I am to my wife. I married a girl who knew she was marrying a stumbler. But somewhere she cupped her hands and decided that she would worship enough with the Lord. And she would covenant with the Lord. Have there been days I made my wife cry? Absolutely. Have there been days that she made me mad? Absolutely. No doubt about it. We're a couple of stumblers that got married. I came off a cow-calf operation. I grew up in sale barns. I grew up back with the, uh, with the veterinarian back there. I've grown up with every word that all of those people know. <laughs> she grew up on a ranch in Oklahoma and a dad who is John Wayne who would kiss the horse and kind of pumped you know, her on the shoulder. She always knew she was loved, but not family. That, and so we just a couple of stumblers. But here's what we did know. And I said this at the marriage retreat. Your covenant is not with each other. Your covenant's not with each other. Your covenant is with God. You see, if your covenant's with each other, then when one of you stumbles... And goes down, the other one goes, this isn't fair. Wait a second. Why am I still living up here when you're not keeping what you said you would do and you're not living it out? And, and so you, you get a little mad and you get a little even and then they kind of get a little mad and they get a little even and you get a little mad and you get a little even and you, and you begin to withdraw and you shut it down a little more and you lean back and you, get, and, and you can just walk that thing down to nothing. And you're not out of line because good grief, look with them. If you're covenants with each other, that's what happens. But what happens if God gives me a, a little girl, so to speak, and stands here, and she gets to be only a witness of it, but it's actually a conversation with God where I stand here and say, God, you brought her into the world and you'll take her out, but until you do, God, do you mind if I take, can I join you on the journey you're taking her? Will you use me? Can I be one of the raw materials that you bring into her life? To bring about everything you designed her to be. My covenants with God. 
And so if she stumbles for a day or she stumbles for a week or she stumbles for a month or she stumbles for six months, it doesn't much matter. It's pretty irrelevant because my covenant wasn't with her. I'll have to love her different because of how she's stumbling. But my covenant's with God. And when your covenant's with God, you worship. And out of your worship, your act of worship to the Lord is I turn back. And I cup my hands and say, here, sweetheart. My wife does not love me deeply as a result of my charismatic, wonderful personality. (laughs) My wife is a worshiper. And she's married to a doofus who stumbles. And in her worship, she has cupped her hands. And God sort of winks and says, watch this. And she's in love with a doofus. It's kind of a funny, wonderful thing. i got to watch time a little bit, but I want to go on with this. You see, God's purposes have much to do with I need to invest in their life for their holiness, but the real truth is, you want to know God also has a hidden secret? Not too hidden. You see, his purpose in my marriage is as much about my holiness as it is hers. When Julie and I got married, I knew her well. She was sweet and kind and pretty and one of the easiest people to love I've ever come into contact with my life, and that's true to this day. When I married Julie, I thought I was kind and considerate and polite and easygoing. I looked very much, in many ways, like Opie Taylor, any of those of you who know, you know, from Mayberry. That's kind of who I was growing up. This shouldn't be hard, getting married. And we got married, and for the first time, I faced a giant mirror to see parts of me I had never seen. Because you see, when you're living in a normal life where you can kind of move in and out of people's lives, you can keep hidden parts of you that you don't even want to look at yourself. I remember the tension on Saturday mornings in our marriage when we first got married. I'm working um, 30-some-hour job. I'm taking 18 or 19 hours at college. i got a Wednesday night church and a Sunday morning church I'm involved with. And Saturdays was the only time that I could sort of sit in that folding chair in our living room, which had no furniture. And I would put on the St. Louis Cardinals baseball on the radio, and I would have a football game on the TV, this 12-inch TV or whatever it was back we had in those days. And Julie, who also worked and was also going to school, would start cleaning the house. And she's cleaning like crazy because that's her personality type. And I knew I ought to jump up and help And she would sigh a little as she walked by. And I thought, you are not going to guilt me out of this chair. I have, And I would sit there, and I would have told you I didn't have pride or arrogance or a great deal of stubbornness, but that chair will tell you I had more than I would have wanted to admit. And I would sit in that chair, and she would get quieter, and I would begin to get fussier. You're not going to fuss me. You're not going to guilt me into jumping up and helping. And it wasn't that I didn't want help on our house and our joint deal. In fact, here's another, and I'm not proud of it, but, but I, I, I'd like to surprise her with helping. So if I could get home, and if I could get all the dishes done, if I could clean the bathroom before she got there, if I could, clean, if I could get the beds changed, I liked it when it was my idea and my surprise. But you want to know what would ruin it? That morning, I might be walking out. She said, hey, if you get a chance to get home, could, you might do Don't say it. When you tell me, it ruins the whole thing. Because pride. You see, I don't mind helping if I'm the star of the show. 
I don't mind helping if some way and what happened is in my own marriage, I found that my frustration wasn't with Julie. And that's the case of most of you with your spouse. My frustration really wasn't with Julie. My frustration was really with marriage and with love because love and marriage make claim, makes claims on us and it calls us to be Christ-like and loving and, and I was resisting that call. Many of you think your spouse is the, part, is the problem. Your spouse is not the problem. The problem is there are parts of you that just resist serving and loving and submitting and being less. We want to be more. And wanting to be more will always find a reason to point at your partner. And I, no doubt about it, they've got enough stumbles, you can justify it if you want to. But here's the problem. You'll remain untransformed. You'll remain non-transformed. You'll remain still this shallow individual. Love has this incredible ability to plow into parts of my life and force me to face things that for the first time in my life, I find holiness. There's a principle in Scripture. It's very, very simple. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. If we love one another, God abides in us or God dwells in us and his love is made perfect in us. You can find that principle everywhere. I'm just going to put this real simple. Where do you best meet God? Oh, I meet him in song services. Boy, I say, I best meet God. Oh, really? Oh, I best meet God on Sunday mornings in the sermon. What? Oh, really? Now, don't misunderstand me. I understand very, very strong the power of the word and the power of singing. But can I tell you the principle of Scripture, whether it's Galatians 5 or this passage, or I could go to 1 John chapter 2, it doesn't really matter. Here's a principle. God said, you really want to meet me? Pick up the talent basin. We'll have our best acquainted conversation there. You begin to serve. When you decide your pride, your arrogance, your stubbornness will be submitted, lo and behold, that's the intersection I'll meet you at. And when I meet you there, we'll scrub some parts of your life that will finally get clean that have never gotten clean before. And so it was in deciding that our marriage ought to be holy that suddenly somebody is cupping their hands and helping her. And it was deciding our marriage should be holy was the first place Christ actually began to do transformation at a deeper level in me. I'm going to tell you that loving a partner normally changes them. But loving a partner always changes you. You've got to decide, do you really live in a marriage with a burning bush? Marriage doesn't trap you. Please hear this. All this servanthood talk. Marriage doesn't trap you. Selfishness traps you. Marriage sets you free often. For the first time in my life, I have to decide whether I follow. I want to, I looked at my watch and I'm going to cut a couple pages out. So where do you start with this? I'm going to give you the most simple place to begin and it's one of the hardest things every man in this room will do. This is universally hard for men. Every man's already going to hate what I'm going to tell you. And I'm going to tell you, get over it. Put your big boy pants on and let's get over it. 
I want you to picture an hourglass. Do you see this hourglass? It takes your imagination, but, but here's an hourglass. Here's the top part. See the little narrow middle part here in the middle and see the bottom part? Can, can you see the hourglass? You can have a marriage that's even a good marriage at some level, and you live in the top half of the hourglass. And it's a good marriage. And you're glad and you love each other and, and, and you even you know, kiss on Valentine's and everything. But I'm going to tell you, there are people who get a double portion of what you get. They get the whole hourglass. They get the top half, and they get to also get to have the bottom half. They get twice the space and territory you have. Because there's a little narrow middle that you have to traverse that you maybe have never learned or been willing to do it, and so you only got the top half. And if you're willing to traverse that little narrow hard middle, you get a double portion. And here's what it comes down to. Have you ever learned to sit down every single day? And I'm going to turn to the man. Have you ever learned to sit down every single day with your spouse and to pray a spiritually transparent prayer holding your wife's hands? I'm not asking you to conduct a prayer meeting. Those are sometimes malarkey. I'm not asking you to do some kind of presentation. I'm asking you to sit down before you go to bed and you sit down and you say, God, thank you for the woman you put in my life. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity that I have to get to walk with this woman on the things you're already doing in her life. Lord, please don't let me get in the way. And Lord, would you use my life in some way, shape, or form? Would you use my hands? Would you, would you help in some way, shape, or form. And when you can begin to pray, Lord, help my wife to even help me become, I'm so sorry for my anger today and my moodiness. And Lord, I was wrong. And my wife has to deal the brunt of it. Father, help her to forgive me. Would you help my wife coach me on this? When you can begin to pray, pray spiritually transparent prayers, there is an explosion of something that happens. And you get both. We all thought, and again, this is what I said at the marriage retreat, we all thought when we were nine-year-old kids that getting married that physical nakedness would be the most embarrassing, hard thing. Oh, brother, as a nine-year-old, you couldn't imagine how horrible marriage is going to be with that. Turns out that's not the problem. Spiritual nakedness is the problem. Let me go you one more. I'm going to tell you, every man ought to read the scripture. And by the way, you say, well, why are you letting the women off the hook? Well, for one, I know that men, headship never means boss. It does not mean boss. It does not mean you control or you're the general. It doesn't mean that you're suddenly the, I mean, it just does not. It doesn't mean you're the lawgiver or the law enforcer. Headship means initiator. That's all it really means, initiator. Well, what if they don't follow? I still initiate. Women, but, but when I turn to, and I'm, I'm a man, and so it's easier for me to, to, to just talk to the men. I'm going to tell you one more. You ought to be in the scriptures every single day. You want to know why? Because it will give you something to pray about with your wife every night. Simplest thing in the world is to read Colossians chapter 3 that day just in your Bible. You were working through Colossians. And Colossians chapter 3 said, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. Okay, that's you, you're reading Colossians 3, and you underlined a little in your Bible. And that night, you held your wife's hand at the table. Or maybe the next morning when you, when, before she went to work, and you held hand, and, and you prayed, God, thank you of all the things. This house is 
the roof leaks and the wind blows. But, Father, we are in this house, holy and dearly loved. Lord, thank you. And, Lord, our closets are full. Both of our closets are full. But, Lord, the only thing you care about is that we're dressed in humility today and gentleness and patience. Father, help me be dressed with patience today when I go to work. Don't, don't let me be snappy with the people that are working for me. Lord, give me patience. And Lord, bless my wife with patience today as she deals with a, a two-year-old. Or, and so you begin to, and so every single day you're reading scripture that you begin to pray back to the Lord. And the next thing you know, you looked up and you're on a journey where the two of you might as well said, that was a burning bush in our house. This became a sacred There are tons of houses that have two Christians in them. But they are not a Christian home. They'll go to heaven. But it was not a holy place. Because we didn't know how to do the one hard thing in the middle. Which is make this place sacred. In our prayers and in our conversations. May God bless you.